Well, buckle your seatbelts because this is a really interesting topic and because the, uh, the question that we've been working through is the last several months or several weeks has been uh, looking at the work that God's Spirit is doing within the church and the idea that last week we're looking at um, that God is helping us, teaching us through the temptations and how there is divine assistance in temptation that is common to all men that there's a way of escape. But in trials, the temptations are the inward, in, inward area, but in trials it's the outward area where God works in response to the external tribulations that we all suffer. It's, it's common to all men, trials and temptations. But when it comes to the testing, that testing is not so common. It's a private thing. It personalized that God does unique work in every individual. And so you'll see that all the way through. You'll see that this morning with the story of Nicodemus <clears throat> as we get into that. But, but we're looking at this idea that there's divine assistance. And now we come to this idea of, of the Spirit's role in transformation. How does God work inside of us? And so as we get into this topic, I want to have you turn to John 3 in your Bibles if you got it and you'll follow with me because there's some interesting things here. But the question is, what does it mean to be born again? And of course, if you're in America, you are a product of the evangelical uh, subculture in the, mainline, in the mainline denominations, historical Orthodox Christianity. But in the last couple hundred years, we have been uh, privileged to hear uh, such men as D.L. Moody and and uh, Billy Graham, a lot of guys who walked the sawdust trail. And, uh, but you get into this idea that belief in Christ is a simple Romans road experience, that if you come to Christ and, and pray a prayer that you are a sinner and that you recognize that Jesus died for your sins on the cross and that uh, you believe in the resurrection and that receiving Christ, you're going to be saved. And there are a lot of people who have, prayed that prayer, and yet weren't reborn. It's been a conundrum for a lot of theologians in the seminaries to say there's an easy believism and a formulaic, a formulaic almost a magic, a shamanic, um, say the magic religious words and you'll get into heaven. But there's something deeper about this question, and I wanted to go into that, because you really have to think, because there's a lot of confusion. And I've been, I've been in groups where people were ridiculing those who were, quote, born again, with a pejorative sense that you can't be one of those. And if you hear uh, certain conversations, people have all kinds of ideas. So if I were to ask you that question, what does it mean to be born again? You might have this, uh, I don't know how to answer that. How would you explain that to somebody? Okay, so let me take you back to elementary school or junior high. When a teacher gave you a question, what kind of student were you? Were you an eager student? Hey, 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 how many were? I, raise your hand. I, I got the answer. How, how many would say, whoop, So you might be one of those two students, but we want to go into um, graduate school, as it were, and I want you to put on your thinking cap because there is something about the reality of the gospel story that is made real by the experience of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we talked about last week when Paul wrote that we all with unveiled faces 
We're vulnerable. We are known. We are seen. There's nothing hidden. But in our state, we look upon Jesus and we contemplate the Lord's glory. There's a shift in focus. It's off our belly button and onto the king. And seeing his glory, seeing Jesus, we are being present tense, ongoing, on a regular basis, being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Which is to say, you can't just say magic words, religious words, and expect the transformation to take place immediately. Because there's something else that the Spirit of God is doing. But I want to assure you as we start that there's divine assistance in all that we do, whether it's uh, temptations, trials, and tests. But there's a, a divine teaching that's going on. And so when Romans, Paul would go over to Rome and he's with pagans. He's not with Jewish people here. But in Romans 1, uh, Paul would say, I got for God whom I serve in my spirit, recognize the thing, recognizing there's a spiritual component in Paul that had taken place. And something happened in Paul that God recognizing my service and my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Why did Paul go to the Romans? Well, he says in the next verse, because I long to see you. I love you guys. I want to be with you guys so that I may impart, now get this, some spiritual gift to you. And what's the purpose of that gift? That you may be established. Not duct taped and glued with a Gorilla Glue and just kind of repaired. He wants you to be stable and solid. That is, that I might be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And so Paul understood things about the Holy Spirit's working. And he says, I want to impart to you. And so it's through the relationships that God gives you encouragement and strength and gifting. But God's Spirit uses all of these things. But Paul would go on to say, as he would worry and pray about these things, because Paul understood that there was something about helping people grow. And he taught about this spiritual formation, this regeneration, and the difference that he came uh, to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and promises. But Paul was supremely concerned, not that people would understand or they would be able to explain. That wasn't Paul's goal. Paul's goal was, it is Christ in you. Until it is incarnate, until it is uh, owned by your own spirit, any kind of edu religious education is not going to go deep enough. So Paul wasn't just out there teaching to be teaching. He was out there teaching to transform people in their relationship with Christ. And that, that that transformation would have a distinctive mark upon the body of pagans, heathens, uh, converts, 
Christians, disciples, disciple makers, and so on and so forth, is that there's all kinds of work going on. And Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, you should see a change in his life because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Can you imagine if you're a caterpillar and you live in Chesterland and you had to go to Bainbridge and you thought, well, I'm a, I, I, I'm a new creature now, so I guess I've got to walk down to Bainbridge. Can you imagine a caterpillar walking and now it's turned into a butterfly and the, the butterfly is now walking to Bainbridge? He's a new creature. He's got wings. He's got capacities he didn't have before. And so the idea that the old thing's passing away, there's a, there's a movement from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light that should be part of our ex- experience. Paul's goal was for a divine, permanent, changing, and a substantial, real transformation in our hearts and our minds of each one of us. So the idea that this newness is not just having uh, the right answer, Jeopardy questions, the Jeopardy questions. It's not having the right feelings, but it is a conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you and for me, for every true believer, in such a way that your heart is stirred. As John Wesley would say, it was warmed. There's something different about when you talk about the Bible and you talk about the gospel, there's something that should well up inside an affection that doesn't come from you. And this was to be the stuff of the redemptive kingdom. This is the mark of the Holy Spirit working on every true believer. And so Paul would say in Galatians 4.19 that he is in travail. I don't know what that word is because I am never, never have been in travail. I've never given birth. And so I don't know the agony that some of you women have gone through. What that nine-month period culminates with a, a period of pain and ah, that's agony. I can't identify with that. But I can identify with the hardening of a heart and working with a fool and stubborn people to say it takes work to be involved with people who are resistant to the gospel. And there Paul would say, I'm in travail until you're growing in Christ. I feel as if those labor pains for you. And and he says, and I'm going through them again and again and again. It's not just a one-time event. There's a series of things that Paul goes. This spiritual transformation discipleship, counseling, training, whatever you call it, is continuing, is a continuing response to the reality of God's work in your heart. It's the grace of God touching us, teaching us that the likeness of who Christ is and the love of Christ is really becoming part of my life story. I become alive in Christ, not subjective just to the cultural religious trends of the day, but I really have an understanding of the kingdom purposes. And so these differences are radical. So let me explain to you something. What biblical transformation is not, so you got to get this one out of the way, because it is not self-generated, and it is not self-directed. It is not brought about through meditation, 
or reflection. It is not a privatized affair. It is not an objective scientific observation that I make research inquiry into about the patterns of my life because I want to change my life and I'm going to ask God to change my life because I've thought about what I need and I make my plans and it's not a formula about how to improve my personality or change my preferences. It's not a change in my pathology or the particular sins of, of the problems that I might have. It is not about me. Biblical transformation is not about a personal search within ourselves for a spiritual balance or self-improvement. It is not giving oneself to understand one's spirituality or one's system of belief. I met a guy in Michigan one time. He said, I decided to come up with my own theology. And I uh, took the best of all the religions and I uh, came up with a God I liked. And so I, that's who I believe in. And I listened to the guy on campus. I thought, that's pretty intelligent. He said, there's one thing you forgot to add in there. He said, what's that? He says, your God didn't die for sins. Yet everything else but that. It is not giving oneself to understand or figure out some construction of, a, of your gender or your sexuality or one's conception of the world it's not your course that you've decided this is how life is going to work. That's not what this is about. But let me give you the basics. Biblical transformation is a response. It's a response to something that's happening outside of you, inside of you, and you're simply responding to it is the operation of grace becoming realized. And so once you realize something's happening, it's a response to the Lord. As Paul would say, when he was awakened on the Damascus Road, what do you, who, who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? In response to God's initiation in the Paul's life. And so here... Here are some passages, and underline these if you've got these. Take notes. Titus 3, 5. Paul's very clear on this. Notice what that says. He saved us, past tense. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done or decided to do or our commitment or our involvement because we know that God needs our help. He saved us not on that basis of what we have done not on the basis of what we have done. Did I say that? Not on the basis of anything we do. It's very clear for Paul. But it's by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's something the Holy Spirit does. And when the Holy Spirit regenerates, when the Holy Spirit moves on people, it's the work of God itself. And therefore, it's not based on my effort, my agreement, my commitment, my worship, my... Even Wesley said, my repentance has to be washed in the blood. And therefore, Paul would say, you've got to understand, he did it. He saved us. He renewed us. 
Peter would pick up the same idea. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to our efforts, no, it doesn't say that, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us, has caused us. He is the source of life. He is the source of motivation. And get that in your head, because this is key. He has caused us to be born again. Being born again is not your decision. Now this is interesting. John would say, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. We agree with that, but notice the next passage. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, born of God. God born. And therefore, Paul would go on to the famous passage you know, for by grace you have been saved through your human effort. Doesn't say that. Through faith, and that is not of yourselves. You see, biblical transformation is a response to that which God has chosen to respond to me. We love because he first loved us. It's a response. It's not a decision. And therefore, it's a continual response to every time God gives you grace, you say, okay, Lord. It's a response uh, that you make because you recognize. As if we had the ability to say, God, let me persuade you to give me grace. Let me persuade you to give me. It's not about us. And that's the point. So when Nicodemus was going that night, I thought to myself, self, he had heard about Christ. This wasn't just a a one-time event. Nicodemus heard about the ministry of Christ and people were getting healed. And no doubt he was with the rabbinical colleagues and they were talking, did you hear what Jesus did? He healed that man on the Sabbath, and they were, he can't be the Messiah. He is the Messiah. No, he's not. And so Nicodemus heard the debates going back and forth. And they said, well, he's demonic. He heard all of that stuff. Now, if you were Nicodemus in a group of of rabbis, church leaders, rabbinical guys, what would prompt him to go against his group to go seek Jesus out? What What went through his mind that afternoon? Something was going on. The scriptures don't tell us. But no doubt that the Spirit of God was at work in Nicodemus before he said these words. And the idea that he says, I'm going to go talk with Jesus. I'm going to go to Jesus. And so he goes to Jesus. And he says, he came by night. And he says three things. He says, Rabbi, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. These three things, notice what he says. First of all, is his title. You're the rabbi. I'm a rabbi. I can, it takes more than no one, so I know you're a rabbi because I'm a rabbi. But he called him rabbi. He didn't call him Messiah. He didn't call him Lord. He didn't call him the Son of God. He didn't call him the Son of David. He just says, you're just a, you're a teacher. Okay, I'll give you that. And he had that 
But he went on to say, you, you are not just a regular teacher, you are a divine teacher because you're saying stuff we haven't heard about before. Not only that, no one can do what you do because God is with you. We, we recognize that. And Jesus would respond to Nicodemus as he did respond to his disciples when they had the same question in John 13. You call me teacher, disciples. You call me teacher and Lord. And Jesus affirmed that, yes, you are right, for so I am. Jesus fully knew his role was to take a depraved world and give it the power of the light so that they would be taught of the Spirit of God. And he would not only say that, he said, I'm going to send another one, another teacher to you. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he will be with you forever to teach you forever till the end of the age. But when he, the Spirit of truth, this teacher, this other teacher, when he comes, he will guide you into understanding, but he won't, he won't speak on his own initiative because he too is in response to the Father and to the Son. You see, all the Christian life is about a response to other people. It's a mutual encouragement. Like Paul would say to the Romans, we're going to encourage each other, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. But the Helper the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, is now coming along inside, and he will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. This is Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Paul would pick that up, and he says, For who among man, men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And we looked at that, Jesus would say, no one knows the Father. I do. And he explained the Father, the Spirit explains Christ, the Spirit, it's the same thing. But Paul would say, for you as a Christian, and I hope you get this, this is one of my favorite verses. Underline this one, this is a memory verse. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Aquinas, Aquinas would pick up this up, that we are given these things to understand. And we were, we were going to be, oh, this is Aquinas. He talked about these seven gifts, that the Spirit's going to give you the gift of wisdom, the gift of knowledge, the gift of counsel, the gift of strength, the gift of fear of the Lord, the gift of reverence. Thomas understood this. Paul understood this. I want you to understand this, because this Spirit, who is a teacher, as you know, you have an anointing from him, and he abides in you, and you have no need for anyone else to teach you. But his anointing is about all things, and it is true, and is not a lie. And therefore, this doctor spirit, the spirit of doctor, the word comes from the same word as doctrine, the orthodoxy. It means the idea that there's someone who causes to know, seek, causes to uh, make it appear right, to fit, to heal, to work at such. And the notion is you're going to be made right only with the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, Nicodemus, without the Holy Spirit, you cannot understand. You have to be born again. And so the idea that when Jesus was speaking, he was saying to Nicodemus, 
Uh, and notice that when Jesus was answering uh, Nicodemus, he would say, uh, you do not understand. Rabbi, you're a teacher of his, shouldn't you? But you, you do not, you cannot, you will never understand until you're born again. Well, that's what Christ is saying to us, is that Nicodemus was trying to figure it out. He was trying to get this idea, well, if, if you're the rabbi and, and you're talking about having to be born again, that he's thinking according to human reasoning, but that reasoning is going to fail him. But Jesus answered, truly, truly. And when he says truly, truly, underline, quote, italic marks, bold, highlight, this is the Hebrew way of saying, pay attention. Unless you are born again, you can't see it. You can't talk about it. And of course, they never did. But the, the teacher says, uh, and this is where we get confused, because your translation in English will mislead you in the sense that it says, in one NIV, truly I say to you, no one can see the kingdom unless they are born again. Notice this, I say to you, Nicodemus, but they cannot be born again. But we read that as though it's, it's a command. Uh, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And the word you there is not just singular you, there's a singular and a plural you. Um, let me find this. Um, when he says, you must be born again, he's talking to all y'all, yous guys. It's plural. I'm saying to you as a principle, not as an imperative command, this is a requisite, this is a requirement. Unless you are, you must be, it is the mark, it is the condition, it's a prerequisite, and therefore, well, how can he do that? if he's going to go back into his mother's womb, he really misunderstood. But I want you to hear, Jesus did not call his answer stupid. Jesus did not call him absurd. But he did engage the debate. He corrected his thinking. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And that's what the Spirit of God does. He takes us where we are, reproves us to make us better, to say this is wrong, this is right. We correct our thinking and we're on the road back again. But he said, I say to you, what is required is you need the Holy Spirit to lead you and then you respond to that requirement. Without this Holy Spirit, one is not able, one is, not, one is incapacitated, and you cannot do this on your own. So the realm is contrasted between the flesh and the spirit. What Paul wanted them to know is that there is a physical birth. And if you are pregnant, it takes nine months and it happens. But the pregnancy, when does life start? Well, it doesn't start when the birth comes. It starts before the birth comes. And so in the womb, does the baby have any choice? No. Not his name. I love the name Crocker because I can't get that out of my mind. Uh, it was given to him. It's a given name. Uh, he didn't have a choice to be born 
in Ireland, or you don't have a choice to be more. It was predetermined and a plan by God had for you. And therefore, understand what, what Paul is saying is that this physical world is somewhat similar to the spiritual world in the sense that it's all responsive to somebody else's work in my life. As parents are the cause of the birth, so the Spirit of God is the cause of your birth, and therefore you can rest. What does it mean to be born again? It means letting the Holy Spirit regenerate inside each person, and that growth in Christ comes out either in a point in time, like in my life, in May 10th, 1972, at 630 in Palmer Hall, Ball State University, I accepted Jesus Christ. That's when I made my confession. That's when I say I was born. But the work of God was all going on before that, calling me, wooing me, drawing me into that relationship. And at that point, I accepted Christ. I was not born again when I said the words. So I'm going to leave you with this. Conversion doesn't cause you to be born again. Being born again causes you to convert. And therefore, the Spirit of God has a process on every man. For Nicodemus, it was just that part of the process. Oh, yesterday at our table, I'm going to close with this. There's a man named Ed Davis. Michael will tell you about this. That Ed Davis, was told to me by another pastor, was a stone killer. I don't know how many men he killed, but he didn't care about how many men he killed because he was a stone killer. And at the Kairos meeting, uh, Ed was invited, waited to get in, but he was not a religious man at all. No way that he would be identified with Christ. He was a mean, mean man. And so Pastor Jim sat down with him and and as he shared some things that were horrific, Jim said to him, well, this is like the story of Paul. And Paul wasn't always Paul. On the Damascus Road, his name was Saul, but he changed his name to Paul. And at that point, his name uh, in prison, Ed Davis was called Psycho by everybody. Everybody referred to him as Psycho. And at that point, Psycho screamed out, with a loud scream in prison, in a Kairos meeting, and no guard showed up, which was unusual, because you scream in prison, boom, everybody comes, but not this time. They must not have heard him or whatever, but Psycho said, I understand, I understand. And he went right back into the Kairos meeting, and he said to the whole group, my name is not Psycho. My name is Ed Davis. And he became a Christian that day, and the transformation didn't start at that confession. It started before he got to Kairos. Kairos just birthed him, was a midwife, and allowed him to come out and testify that God had given him the grace to respond. That's what God does. Biblical transformation, being born again, is a response to the work of God's Spirit inside of you. And therefore, you can be like Nicodemus in a church and have all this religious education, but unless the Spirit of God is inside of us, we are not born again. This is a tricky, uh, tricky teaching because a lot of people say, well, if you've accepted Jesus, 
you are born again, but you see no transformation. You look at the work and the response of people. And if there's a growing desire for the word, there's a growing desire to be part of a church, there's a growing desire to know the Lord, there's growth, 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 then you know somebody's really, truly being responsive to the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a lot. Let me stop here because there's more to this. We'll continue on next week about this. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the source of our life. And thank you that we can rest in you. We do pray that you would breathe new life into us, that we would be responsive in obedience and faith and trust and rest, that we would love you loving us. And so, Father, would you take these words, sow them deep inside of us, and what is of your spirit would you cause to bear fruit, and what is not would you burn away. Father, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.